Well, we come this morning to the third chapter of the book of Habakkuk, the concluding chapter to this this minor prophet uh, in the Old Testament. And just by way of review, we saw at the beginning of this book that it really began with Habakkuk making a cry of complaint to God. That's how chapter 1 began. In verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? This was a cry of complaint. This was a cry to God because Habakkuk, although he had faith in God, he was having a hard time seeing God in the midst of everything that was going on in the southern kingdom of Judah. This was a prayer, as you recall, of complaint to God for the unrighteous, even those in leadership, even the king Jehoiakim, was oppressing and suppressing the righteous. There were very few faithful people in the southern kingdom of Judah at this time. Habakkuk was one of them. He was the ringleader of the righteous remnant. There were many false prophets, but he was a true prophet. And in the midst of this, the people of God are crying to God for deliverance. And we saw in chapter 1 that after his first series of complaints, God responded. But God responded in a most perplexing way. God said He was going to answer this cry of complaint by sending the wicked Babylonians to invade the southern kingdom of Judah. God was going to punish the sin of Judah. But in punishing the sin of Judah, He was going to use the wicked Babylonians to do that. And of course, the righteous remnant, including Habakkuk, would receive the consequences of that judgment. They would not themselves be physically delivered from the massacre and the invasion that would take place. So this prompted Habakkuk to another series of complaints where he cries out to the Lord in chapter 1 and verse 12. And he makes this interesting statement. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? And then he says, We shall not die. It's as if Habakkuk understands that that age-old promise all the way back in the garden that God would raise up a Messiah, He would raise up a Deliverer, the seed of the woman that now would pass through Abraham's seed. He begins to realize that this judgment of God is not going to result in the complete obliteration of the southern kingdom of Judah. For God to do that, He would be unfaithful to His promises. And yet in the midst of his confirming of God's sovereignty and the preservation of His promises that not all of Judah would die, that God would preserve a righteous remnant. He is yet still perplexed at God's justice in using the wicked Babylonians to judge Judah. In his frame of reference, you have to understand, he understood that Judah was wicked, but the Babylonians were far more wicked. How could God use more wicked people to judge Judah? And of course, God responded in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is essentially all of it, with the exception of verse 1, is a response from God. This dialogue turns into a monologue where God promises Judah that though He is sending the Babylonians to punish Judah, that yet He will in, in the end punish the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is waiting, as chapter 2 verse 1 says, taking a stand on the watch post on the tower, looking to see what God's Word would reveal. And of course, God reveals that the Babylonians themselves will be punished. Now, for our day and age, in terms of the application, we've been working hard to apply this 
for today. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. It's a book in the Bible that many preachers gloss over. They don't preach through because the message is difficult to grasp. It's hard to understand the bridge that connects the world of Habakkuk to our world today. But in a nutshell, what we understand from this glorious book is that God is a sovereign God. God sees every heart. He sees every action of every person. God is a God of holiness. God is a God of justice. He will not allow sin to go unpunished, and yet He will remain faithful to His salvation promises. He is in heaven, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Verse 20, let all the earth keep silence before Him. And after Habakkuk sees this vision of everything God is going to do on the stage of world history, he is in silence. The sovereign God has determined in the fullness of His righteousness and holiness that though Habakkuk may not understand what he is doing, that God is still going to follow through with His plan. He has His purposes. And after wrestling with God and questioning Him concerning God's sovereign decision, Habakkuk now responds with worship. And let me say this morning, in chapter 3, this response of worship that we're going to be looking at is really the only right response to a sovereign God. Even as you sit here this morning and undoubtedly don't understand some of the things God is doing on the world stage, some of the things God is doing in your own life, you don't understand all the purposes behind the sovereign, mysterious God, you understand one thing, and I know it because you're here this morning, you understand that it is your duty and it is your delight to worship God for no other reason than that He is God and that He is sovereign. We owe Him our worship and our adoration. In fact, we could say that the best expression of trust in a sovereign God will always manifest itself in worship. And I'm not just talking about Lord's Day worship, although that is the climax of our worship, but I'm speaking of all of life as worship before God. The best expression of your faith and your trust in God is worship. And that's why you're here this morning. Now, in spite of the prophecy of God's coming disaster for Judah, Habakkuk concludes his prophecy with a hymn of worship in honor of his sovereign God. That's really what chapter 3 is. It's a combination of a prayer slash hymn to God. And in it, we find a lot of instruction for our own worship for today. You could look at it this way. Habakkuk's hymn is the prophet's amen to what he had been told God was going to do regarding this disaster. It is Habakkuk's amen to God's justice in punishing Judah. It is Habakkuk's amen and the recognition that though this judgment would come, that God would fulfill His promises in preserving a righteous remnant. It is Habakkuk's response to God in humble submission to God's sovereignty. It's in essence Habakkuk saying, God, you can do whatever you want. You have a right to do it, and I submit to that. And if you think about it, all worship is, is submission to God. When you read throughout Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, even angels of God, who are not God Himself, but merely representatives of God, when they come before the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament, what happens? 
people fall prostrate before their faces, bowing down before these angels, even though these angels are not God. They represent God. And so the glory of God surrounds them. And the only response is humble worship. Well, that's what worship is. It is bowing. It is bowing low before God, if not physically, certainly internally with our hearts. The importance of worship in the Christian life, therefore, can hardly be overstated. John Stott says, and I quote, Worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man, by the grace of God, is capable. Worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man, by the grace of God, is capable. And of course, for the Christian, as I said earlier, all of life is to be viewed as worship. For Christians, ultimate worship is offering all of ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord, as Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And as such, worship encompasses more than just singing in a church service. Uh, Worship is more than just praying in a church service. Worship is a way of thinking. Worship is a way of living that honors and glorifies God. Habakkuk understands that. Habakkuk also understands that what undergirds all true worship is the unchanging sovereign truth of God centered upon His redemptive purposes in Christ. He understood that all worship is grounded in truth, even for our public reading of Scripture. Our Lord confirmed that, didn't He? In John 4, He said, The hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And God is a spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now there can be no other verse that is more applicable to the common arguments of today regarding worship than Jesus' words in John 4. Because many today wrongly associate worship merely with elaborate worship sets complete with a band's performance, or perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, an ornate building, or perhaps an elegant liturgy. And while these things may be outward expressions of worship, Jesus said true worship is in the Spirit. True worship is in the heart. It's done in spirit, and it's done in truth. And yet, none of this means that worship services don't matter or that music in worship, because it's only one element of worship, doesn't matter, that what we sing doesn't matter or how we sing doesn't matter. It all matters. Singing is one element of worship, as prayer is. But really, you could sum this down, and I really want to give to you sort of a theology of worship before we even look at chapter 3. And here's the summary. You can view worship as having two essential elements. Two elements and really two elements only. Number one, God speaks to us. That's element number one. Element number two is us speaking back to God. That's really what worship is. It's God speaking to us through His divine Word, Holy Scripture. And it's then the congregation speaking back to God. And how do we speak back to God? Two ways. We speak back to Him through prayer and through song. We respond to God's divine revelation. Just a small example will do. If a parent tells a child to obey, and the child says, yes ma'am, or yes sir, we say that is a good response to the one in authority. But if a parent in authority 
tells a child to obey, and the child responds by saying, why should I obey? Then we say, that is a wrong way to respond. And how we respond to God in worship matters. How we pray to God matters. How we sing to God matters. What we pray to God matters. What we sing to God matters. We aren't simply to respond to God in worship as if the only thing God cared about was a response. As if it's unimportant how we respond or it's flexible how we respond or God is indifferent to the way that we respond. No, God cares how we respond to Him in worship. We are called to respond in worship to His divine revelation, but there is a way to respond. And genuine worship will always engage the mind with God's sovereign, unchanging truth in His Word. It will not bypass truth. And therefore, our response to God in worship will also be thoughtful and reverent. And here in Habakkuk chapter 3, what Habakkuk does is he goes through the history of God's faithfulness to Israel in delivering them time and time and time again. And of course, if you think of Scripture as a whole, that's really all that Scripture is. It is a record of God's faithful deliverance of His people culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, worship that honors God is marked by this sort of decency and dignity and order. 1 Corinthians 14.40 says, but all things should be done in decency and in order. God cares how we respond in worship. And I should say that worship that is mindless and repetition, which by the way marks most worship in churches today if we're honest, worship that is mindless and repetitious in prayer and song rather than thoughtful and reverent produces chaos and disorder and doesn't honor God. True worship is biblical. True worship doesn't seek to bypass the mind. It seeks to fill the mind. True worship ascribes to God the honor, the glory, the adoration, the praise, the exaltation, the reverence, the devotion that He deserves. And the only way that we can honor Him in that way is by filling our mind with the Word of God. That's why Jesus said we are to worship Him in spirit You have the right attitude and in truth. You can't have the right spirit apart from the truth of God's Word. And herein lies the application of Habakkuk 3. I'm taking a a long road to get around to Habakkuk chapter 3. But the central lesson of this chapter is simply this. When worship focuses on God and focuses on His rightful glory it will result in a strengthening of the faith of the person in worship. And all I can do is go to the end of chapter 3 and show to you how the hymn that Habakkuk writes concludes. Notice with me in verse 17. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take refuge in the God of my salvation. For God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Habakkuk is able to say this after he chronicles God's faithful deliverance of Israel throughout her history. And so he writes this hymn to strengthen the faith of God's people. 
Now, you need to consider the plight that God's people find themselves in. We want to remember that Babylon has been promised by God, the Chaldeans, to invade Jerusalem. Now, what this is going to result in is the loss of many lives. Children will be killed. Spouses will be killed. Those that are not killed will be dragged away in chains to Babylon to live there in captivity for 70 years. This is the worst thing that happened to the nation of Israel, particularly the southern kingdom. And so this prophet of God needs to prepare the people for what they are about to face. He needs to strengthen their faith. And so what does he choose to do to strengthen their faith? He chooses to write a hymn for public worship. So that as the children of God are being taken away in chains, they can sing this great song of theology. As they are in captivity, they can sing of God's promises of salvation and deliverance. That this is not the final word. God will be faithful. He will preserve a righteous remnant. And from this remnant will come a Messiah. That's what all of this is pointing forward to. My favorite genre of movies are war movies. And I like old war movies that are black and white. I like some of the newer movies. One newer movie is a movie entitled Memphis Bell. I have a particular love for this movie because it is about B-17 um, airplanes in World War II. And my grandfather was a ball turret gunner on one of those great fortresses and flew over 25 missions uh, in World War II. And there's a scene at the beginning of the movie when all of the soldiers are heading from the mess hall to the plane, to get into the plane, to head off to their 25th and final mission. And as they are on these little cars that are loaded with bombs and loaded with the soldiers and jeeps and this caravan of military personnel leaves the mess hall to go to their flying fortress, they are all singing a song. And the song is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. And their confidence is looking at God in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of what they don't know is going to occur. I think of another movie entitled PT-109, which chronicles the, uh, the heroism of President John F. Kennedy before he was president. It's an older movie. And when they're finally rescued off the island that they were on for some time, they're in the boat and they're heading back and they start singing. And they're excited. And what song did they choose to sing? But Amazing Grace. Again, Amazing Grace. The Amazing Grace of God. Well, that's sort of the idea here. Habakkuk understands the people of God need something to comfort them. And so what he does is he, 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 he composes a hymn that will then be implemented into the corporate worship of Israel. And that's where we come to our text This morning, notice with me in verse 1, Habakkuk writes as the title of this, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. Now you say, how do we know that this was a hymn for public worship? Well, everything that we need to know is found here in verse 1. If you Notice with me that word prayer. That's an interesting word. There are about a dozen words used in the Hebrew Old Testament for prayer. But this particular word, tefillah, 
um, is a Hebrew word that is found in the Psalms. And listen to this. It is associated with corporate worship of God's people. As a matter of fact, several of the Psalms are specifically called prayers using this exact word in the Hebrew Old Testament. And in these Psalms, when it uses this word tefillah or prayer, it is using a word that has connotations of a prayer that is set to music and sung in formal worship. As a matter of fact, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 72, we have a a very interesting verse that doesn't come out in the English, but in the Hebrew it comes out. Psalm 72 verse 20 concludes, and this is book two, the end of book two of the Psalms, Psalm 72 20 says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That word prayers is the same exact Hebrew word that is used in Habakkuk 3. It's the Hebrew word tefillah, a word that doesn't mean merely prayer, but has connotations of a prayer set to music. And what Psalm 72 20 is indicating is that all the Psalms up to this point, Psalms 1 through 72, are prayer songs that were written by David. And of course, this makes sense. It makes sense because David wrote most of the Psalms that were then involved in the corporate worship of Israel. Habakkuk is clearly writing a prayer hymn, like a psalm to God for the people of God. But not only that, notice also, verse 1 says that it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. Now, the word Shiganoth is only found two times in the entire Bible. It's an untranslatable Hebrew word. But most people believe that it likely refers to some sort of musical notation. That this word shiganoth indicates a a tune or a pace of singing for Israelite corporate worship. The other time that it's used, by the way, is in Psalm 7. It's used in its singular form where David refers to Psalm 7 as a shiganoth that he sings to the Lord. A shiganoth that will be sung to the Lord. All of this more than strongly suggests that this is not merely a prayer that Habakkuk is writing in chapter 3, this is a hymn. Not only that, but if you follow with me to the end of chapter 3 and to the postscript of the book, we just read it a few moments ago in verse 19, Habakkuk commits this hymn, notice, to the choir master, Habakkuk 3.19, to the choir master with stringed instruments. As he comes to the end of composing this great hymn, he then submits it to the choir master in the temple for it to be sung with stringed instruments. Now, as I said, music does not define worship. The Word of God defines worship. Music is only one element of worship. But that doesn't mean it's peripheral. Music is critical to worship. You can think of it this way. God speaks to us one way and one way only. God does not come to us in visions today. God does not speak through tongues. God does not speak to us in secret dreams. God comes to us and speaks to us in His Holy Word. But the way we respond back to God is through prayer and through song. And in worship, we respond to God through music. That's why singing is so important. Music is not peripheral to worship, it's critical to worship. 
Because our spirits are lifted as we proclaim biblical truth, as we exalt God, we remind one another of our great salvation through song. And that's exactly what Habakkuk is driving at. He wants the people of God, as they are taken into captivity, not to forget the promises of God. They're not going to be able to go to temple worship and hear the Word of God. Therefore, the Word of God must be brought to them through song. And as they hear it, they're hearing the Word of God. And as they sing it, they're responding back to God in worship for His promise of salvation. The purpose of worship, therefore, is not to make us feel good. It is to praise God. It is to strengthen our faith. Indeed, though music is not strictly prayer, and prayers are not always accompanied with musical instruments, music is nevertheless a form of prayer. It is speaking to God. It is a response in our worship to God. I love what C.S. Lewis once noted, and I quote, he said, Nothing should be done or sung or said in church which does not aim directly or indirectly either at glorifying God or edifying the people or both. And of course, that includes what we sing. What we sing to God. Congregational singing was important in the Old Testament It therefore should be important in the New Testament. Not everyone can preach the sermon, but everyone can sing. And God doesn't require everyone to have a wonderful singing voice. This is a response to the Lord, and therefore music is critical in worship. Now, perhaps even speaking about Habakkuk himself, Martin Luther said this about worship, and about music in particular. He said, "...beautiful music is the art of the prophets." that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has given us, end quote. He says in another place, Luther does, next to the Word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. He also says, and I really like this one, the devil, the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless troubles, flees before the sound of music. Music is a gift and a grace of God, not an invention of men. Thus, it drives out the devil, music does, and makes people cheerful, and then one forgets all wrath, all impurity, and other devices. This comes from the pen of Martin Luther. And even John Calvin, the great reformer who did not allow musical instrumentation in the church he pastored, nevertheless had a huge role in the singing ministry of the church, even instructing the children with catechisms that were set to music and inviting musical professionals to come into the church to instruct the congregation on how to sing various parts. So as we look at Habakkuk 3, I want us to look at it with the thought of worship in general in mind and music specifically in mind. As we look at Habakkuk 3, really we find three lessons about worship in general and singing in worship specifically. Now, originally, I was going to preach one sermon through this chapter, and obviously that's not going to happen uh, this morning. We're going to divide this up in a couple of sermons. But if you want a little outline to follow over the next couple of weeks, you can look at it this way. Verses 1 and 2 speaks about the pattern of worship, or what we call our approach to worshiping God. The pattern of worship. Verses 3 through 15 speak about the path of worship, or you could say the content of our worship, which is the Word of God centered upon His salvation, deliverance. And then verses 16 through 19 speak about the payoff of worship. So that's sort of the outline, the pattern of worship, the path of worship, and the payoff 
of worship. Now we're just going to look at verse 2 and the time that we have remaining, which speaks about the pattern of worship. Verse 2 teaches us that the pattern of worship before God in general and singing before God in worship specifically is marked, watch this, by a reverence in humility. As Habakkuk comes before God, the opening line of this hymn found in verse 2, which is somewhat separate from the rest of this hymn, is an opening line of utter reverence and submission to God. And it is a reminder to us that as we approach God in worship, the pattern of our worship, the thing that ought to mark our worship, is a reverence in humility before God. And this reverence is marked by two things. I just have two points. The beginning of verse 2, adoration, and the second part of verse 2, petition. It's a reverence that is marked by adoration of God and also petition to God. Notice with me the beginning of verse 2, what we'll call adoration. Now, adoration is the act of paying honor or respect, reverent homage to God. Notice Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now, as the prophet has spoken to God and he's heard God's response. He knows that as he goes to deliver this response that God gave to him, he received it as he was waiting on the watchtower, he knows that the people of God are going to be as perplexed as he is. So as he writes this opening hymn, or this hymn, he writes this opening line, he wants the people of God to have a bit of the reverence that he didn't have at the beginning of the book. At the beginning of the book, it is a dialogue in which he's complaining against God, he's questioning God. But here in verse 2, all of that changes. There is a, not a, so much an argumentative spirit, but a spirit of reverence, a spirit of humility. He wants the people of God to approach God in this sort of way. And so he speaks about the report he heard from God. Now, what did he hear from God? What was the report that he heard that he is fearful of? Well, many commentators believe that it was the report of God's work of judgment at the hands of the Babylonians that struck a chord of fear within Habakkuk's heart, so that he says that he fears before God. And surely the report was terrifying. When you think back to chapter 1 and you think about Babylon being described as fishermen who are going to catch the people of Judah in their nets, uh, we read here that uh, he brings them all up with a hook. Chapter 1, verse 15, he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. He rejoices and he is glad. Uh, we read in chapter 2 about uh, uh, God's judgment on Babylon because of all their wickedness and, and violence and oppression. And so these people were marked with great violence. And it was fearful for the people of God to know that the Babylonians were coming for them. And so many people believe that here in verse 2 of chapter 3, Habakkuk is speaking about this report that he heard from God of the Babylonians, and that is why he is fearful. That's a possibility. Other commentators believe that this is not a dreadful fear that Habakkuk is expressing, but it's more of a reverential awe at what... Habakkuk has heard in times past in the temple that he is now reporting in verses 3 through 15. What does he report in verses 3 through 15? He reports the great deliverance of God and God's faithfulness to Israel. 
This is Lloyd-Jones's interpretation of the passage. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that Habakkuk's fear should not be interpreted to mean that Habakkuk was afraid of the things that were going to happen as revealed to him by God, but rather the word fear suggests all in the presence of such a great God, worshipful adoration and wonder at God and all of His ways. And I tend to agree with Lloyd-Jones. Sure, there probably was an element of dreadful fear of the Babylonians. Who would not be fearful of these military people that were coming to do great destruction to the people of God? But I think it's more than that. I think this is a reverential fear. You have to understand, Habakkuk has, been, has seen the vision of God, of this great judgment. He is struck not only with the dreadful fear of the judgment of God through the Babylonians, he is struck with the sheer reverence of a sovereign God that can do whatever He pleases. It's sort of like every other bold man of God. The best and boldest prophets were men of God who quaked in the presence of God. Moses at the burning bush. Daniel. Isaiah. And we've already seen that in Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. I mean, Habakkuk's mouth is shut at the response of God. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord can do whatever He wants to do. And so this man who began the book by complaining against God and questioning God no longer argues with God. There is a reverence and an awe before God that wasn't there before. And then the prophet wants the people of God to understand that as judgment comes from the Babylonians, God has His sovereign purposes that are always good, and God has His sovereign right to execute whatever He wants to do. And so there is this awe. Now I think there's much application today in speaking about worship in general and speaking about music specifically in worship There is far too much chumminess, far too much familiarity with God in worship today, especially in singing today. It was Steve Lawson who said that most worship services are essentially vacation Bible school for adults. Everything is clappy and cheery and videos and dancing and jumping. Where's the reverential adoration and awe of a holy God? Where is the fear of the sovereign of the universe that keeps in your lungs this very morning your very breath? Where is the reverence? Where is the fear? Habakkuk understands the people of God need to be fearful of Him. It's a reverential fear. It's not so much a fear of His judgment. It's a fear of who He is. It's an awe of who He is. Now, too much fear can be bad. As a matter of fact, too much fear can be paralyzing. In some cases, it can be deadly. I read the true account this week of a father who took his nine boys to a picnic that was sponsored by their church. And the trip to the place of the picnic required a train ride to the country. It was in the latter part of the 19th century, around the year 1879. The mother of these nine boys didn't feel well, so she stayed at home. And the father took the boys. Well, later that afternoon, a man came on horseback riding through the north end of Boston, uh, which is the city this family lived in, bearing the false news of a horrific train accident of the very train carrying the church picnic goers. And upon hearing the news, the mother collapsed on the floor. And two hours later, she died. 
And on the death certificate, the cause of death said that her death was caused by sudden shock. Sudden shock. By the time her family arrived home, she was already dead. And it was said that she died grieving for a family she only thought she had lost. In other words, a false fear caused her death. There is a wrong type of fear of God that can cause a paralysis. There is a wrong type of fear of God that can cause a sort of spiritual shock that doesn't produce genuine worship. And I'm not talking about that sort of fear. I'm talking about a reverential fear of God for who He is in all of His holiness. The lightness, the frivolousness, the informality that marks much of worship today is a disgrace in the eyes of God. And I praise God that we're in the new covenant. We are brought near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We enter His presence with a holy boldness. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that Christ's blood should not lessen our reverence for God. It should enhance it. Enhance our adoration, our godly fear in His presence. We think about the people of God in the Old Testament. The people of the Old Testament trembled in the presence of God. They feared even to speak His hallowed name. It rendered them speechless. And I don't know how much time passed in between chapters 2 and 3, but I think a considerable amount of time must have passed. Everyone is in silence before this holy God in His temple, including Habakkuk. As he sees this vision, he's got to have time to collect his thoughts. To understand that before I say anything to God, before I respond in any manner to what God has just said, I better know what I'm getting ready to say. It better be truthful. It better be carefully worded. For God is a consuming fire. And I think this sort of adoration, this reverence and humility marked by adoration should mark our worship, should mark our singing. I think that's the application of this passage. And when you think about it, when you come before God in worship and you're standing before the holy God of the universe in His temple in heaven, there's two things that stand out and only two things. Number one, the holiness of God. And number two, your sinfulness. That ought to strike a chord of reverential fear in your heart. Not one that leads to paralysis, but one that leads to the comfort of the gospel. But yet one that is reverent before this Holy God. And so, this passage teaches us about adoration in our worship. That takes us to the second point, and I'll be quick with this one. Not only adoration in our reverence and humility, but secondly, petition. If adoration is the act of respecting God in worship, then petition is the act of beseeching God in worship. And Habakkuk not only responds with adoration, but also petition or request. Notice he says at the second half of verse 2, In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is a petition. All worship involves petition, prayer. Singing is a prayer to God. Corporate prayer. What does he mean when he says in the midst of the years? Well, in the midst of the years refers to the time of Judah's punishment at the hand of the Chaldeans. And it includes not only the invasion itself, but also the 70 years of captivity. He's saying in the midst of all of these years, revive it. What does he want revived? What is this a reference to? This is a prayer for God to revive His work among His people. 
to yet fulfill His salvation promises. Which is why He says also, in the midst of the years, make it known. Make what known? Make God's great deliverances of Israel in the past known, which He speaks about in verses 3 through 15. You see, the people of God needed nothing more than to be reminded that God is not just a God of judgment, but He is a God of salvation. Habakkuk is begging God. He is petitioning God for his salvation. This is not a request, and you need to mark this. This is not a request to be delivered from the impending invasion by the Chaldeans. He's already accepted that invasion as the sovereign purposes of God. This is a request to not let God's people perish out of existence. This is a request that God might preserve a holy seed among this people that after 70 years, as the prophet Jeremiah predicted, they may return. And that from this remnant may come a deliverer, may come a Messiah. As a matter of fact, that word revive in verse 2 literally means preserve or keep alive. That's what he's praying for. Keep alive a remnant. He's praying for a preservation of God's people, a revival so to speak. You know, that's one thing that should really mark, I think, our prayers today above everything else, a revival. God, make the church pure. God, revive the church. God, if you have to discipline the church, discipline the church. But God, wash your bride. Wash the church with the water of the Word. Preserve a remnant in these evil times. What do you think the church's biggest problem today is? Many people say it's the world around her. Many people say it's the hate of racism Terrorism, nuclear threat, chemical, biological weapons, politicians. But really, the church's biggest threat, the church's biggest problem is herself. She's been unfaithful. She's been an unfaithful wife to God. Habakkuk knew that Judah had been unfaithful to God. He understands the judgment is coming. He's not praying for deliverance from the judgment, he knows they deserve the judgment. He's praying for, in the midst of all of this, let your glory shine. Let your salvation deliverance shine through. And I wonder if the Christian church today has paused to consider that our present circumstances are at least partially the result of the Lord's chastisement for a godless, heretical, compromising church that we find ourselves in today. I'm not speaking about our church specifically. I'm speaking about the universal church at large. And I think we must be careful not to deceive ourselves in thinking that the church is at least not part of the reason for the state of the present world. Very similar to what Habakkuk and the people of Judah found themselves in in Habakkuk's day. There's been much talk, of course, in the past week in the news about the destruction of historical monuments. And there's people on both sides, people that say you shouldn't destroy historical monuments, people that say these monuments need to be removed. Well, Habakkuk knew that though historical monuments could be torn down, God's work in the past, His work among His people would always be remembered. And so, notice what he says at the end of verse 2. He says to God in wrath, remember your mercy. He says, God, I know we have what's coming to us. I know we deserve it, but please be merciful. God, we remember how you delivered us from the Egyptians. We remember how you were faithful to the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
You brought us into our land. You gave us a temple. You gave us a place of worship. Now we're going out of that. Oh God, would You remind Your people that You're still a God of salvation. In Your wrath, remember Your mercy. You see, he bases his worship on what he knows to be true about God, that God is merciful and full of compassion and abundant and loving kindness. And notice he doesn't say, remember us for our merits. There are no merits. He says, remember us for your mercy. Remember your mercy, not because we deserve it, but for your name's sake. Preserve a righteous remnant, which will serve as a seed for a new generation to spring up from which our deliverer may come. This worship is that marked by petition. When we come to God in Lord's Day worship, we're doing two things. We're adoring God. We're adoring Him for His glory, for His excellence, for His sovereignty. And we are petitioning Him on the basis of His mercy found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're praying for His grace. We're praying for His salvation. We're singing about His mercy and His deliverance. And all of that, strengthens our faith. We hear God's voice through His Word. We respond back to God with the same Word as we rejoice and we exalt in the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship in general, and singing and worship in particular, involves this sort of reverence in humility. It's the prayer of Psalm 103 that we recited earlier in our Scripture Assurance of Pardon. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives iniquity, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Habakkuk understands this is what worship looks like. And so in the opening line of this hymn, he reminds us of adoration and petition, that all worship might be marked by a God-centeredness, not a man-centeredness. And next week, we will see the content of this worship, beginning in verse 3, going to the end of this wonderfully rich hymn composed by the prophet. Until then, let us pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and reminding us of the importance of worship, the centrality of worship. Lord, we understand this morning that worship is all of life, We are to be living monuments in honor of You. We are to be living sacrifices for You. And our corporate worship on the Lord's days together are to be marked by this sort of adoration and petition. We approach You the same way Habakkuk approached You and the people of God in the Old Testament. With the reverence of humility, You are sovereign. For God is in the heavens, Psalm 115 says, and He does whatever He pleases. Oh God, that is You. We recognize that this morning. Father, our prayer is that our worship might be marked by such adoration and such petition. And as we walk our way through the final verses of this great prophetic book, we pray that you would enhance our worship together, that you might receive the honor and the glory and the praise. For we ask all of these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.